Hello and welcome to Small Islands Big Picture, the podcast that puts small islands in focus. I'm Emily Wilkinson, Senior Research Fellow at ODI, a global affairs think tank, and Director of the Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative, the network behind this podcast. And I'm Matthew Bishop. I'm an academic at the University of Sheffield in Northern England, and I'm also a Director of the Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative, or RESI for short. Tiffany Van Ravensvay is a negotiator from Suriname. She spoke to Emily at the recent climate change conference in Bonn. Suriname is one of the most vulnerable countries when it comes to climate change with regards to our low-lying coastline. So we're kind of disappearing as well. Most of our population, 85% of our population is in that area. So all of our economic activities will be affected by if these climate effects become worse for us. Smaller countries don't contribute as much to it, but they feel the most of it. So this is the first of a monthly series where we're going to focus on small island developing states issues around the world. For the next 30 minutes, we'll explain why small islands matter and the big picture of why what happens to small islands affects all of us. So why are we doing this podcast? We think this will be a great way of amplifying the voices and the stories of people who live in small island developing states, also known as SIDS. Don't worry, we'll try and keep the acronym count to a minimum. So who is this podcast for? Well, it might be for people who actually live on small islands. Perhaps you're sat somewhere in the Pacific or the Caribbean or the Indian Ocean or even within Europe right now. Or perhaps you're someone with island heritage who lives in a northern country. Or perhaps you're people who work in and on islands. Maybe you work for an international organisation like the UN or the World Trade Organisation or something like that. Or perhaps you're just a casual, generally interested listener. This podcast is for all of you. Okay, so a little bit about RESI, the Resilient and Sustainable Islands Initiative. We set up RESI two years ago, really to elevate issues and concerns of small island developing states. I noticed very much that a lot of research and interest in small islands was very specific in particular islands, but was not really being put together, was not really being shared and was not really reaching or influencing international policy. And so the particular needs and vulnerabilities of small island developing states was not really being recognized globally, even though there was really a very deep and interesting literature on these topics and a lot of very good ideas. We have this global advisory network now, which can support small island developing states and their partners to really elevate some of these issues and to influence international policy and shape some of the institutions which are really important to and determine what happens in SIDS. And why do I think RESI is so important? Well, I was one of those people that you were just talking about that worked in a small island. I was based in the early part of my career at the University of the West Indies in Trinidad and Tobago. And it became really clear to me quite early on that there were huge amounts of really interesting work being undertaken in all of the different islands, exactly as you say. And the connections that were being made between either academics in island countries and academics outside, 
or between different members of the policymaking elites, whether in country or whether within multilateral organisations, were not always as strong as they could have been. So the reason I think RESI is so important is that it provides a role as what is called in the academic literature as a boundary organisation. Our job really is to help to connect people and help to make sure that the people who should be listening, people with power, are listening to those in small islands who have the best solutions quite often to the challenges facing them. And now we're going to hear from another RESI director, Dr Courtney Lindsay, who is based in Jamaica, who's going to tell us a bit about why he thinks RESI is important. Being a national of a small island developing state, Jamaica, and having worked in the area of development in the Caribbean and through research in the Pacific, it is clear the developmental challenges facing these highly vulnerable countries in a world that sees them as beautiful places for rest and recreation, but largely ignores the difficulties of day-to-day -day life of those who actually live there. Rezi's work is critical. It is the only dedicated think tank that brings together over 50 academics and policy practitioners together to contribute to finding solutions that will address the issues facing SITS. The biggest and most stubborn of which is economic development through diversification being made more difficult every day by climate change. Okay, so let's identify and unpack 10 key characteristics about SIDS that everyone needs to know. Let's go from number 10, Matt. Okay, so number 10 is the SIDS produce less than 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and yet they are very much on the front line of climate change. The most devastating effects of climate change are going to hit SIDS faster and harder than pretty much any other group of states, despite them being by far and away the least responsible for climate change. Number nine is that they are disproportionately influential in international negotiations and in particular in climate change negotiations and the Alliance of Small Island States, AOSIS, has been really key in getting this 1.5 degree global warming threshold into the Paris Agreement. Number eight is the SIDS are custodians of some of the largest exclusive economic zones in the world, or EEZ. We promised we wouldn't do more acronyms, but there are a few, I'm afraid. They have some of the largest EEZs in the world, which essentially mean that from 200 miles out from their coastline, they're in charge of some of the world's largest expanses of ocean. So perhaps we should not be calling them small island developing states, and we should be calling them large ocean states. And in recognition of that fact, they are managing a crucial resource for the whole of mankind, essentially. Number seven is biodiversity. SIDS have 20% of all plant, bird and reptile species in just 3% of the world's land surface area. Number six is that they have particularly hazardous geography or topography. The vast majority of SIDS are located in the tropics, which means that they have huge amounts of rainfall. They are very, very hot and they tend to also increasingly suffer from droughts, which is not normal in places that tend to have rainforests. They also tend to be volcanic for obvious reasons, because they sit on many of the world's tectonic plates and they also in many cases are atolls. So if they're not usually volcanic, they tend to be atoll states or they consist of numerous atolls, which are very, very low lying. And this should make it very, very clear that the nature of the risks they face, by and large, are completely different to the risks that most larger states, particularly those in the global north, face from climate change. 
Number five is their remoteness and insularity. They're a very long way away from anywhere else, from each other. Some of them made up of lots of very small islands that are also very far apart, which means that it's very costly for them to develop, to get any resources in and out. And yeah, the cost of doing business in SIDS are incredibly high. Number four is that SIDS are amongst the most heavily indebted countries in the world. Relative to the size of their economies, they carry the most debt of almost any countries globally. And this crucially is not a function of kind of wasteful spending. It's a function of the fact that they are excessively exposed, disproportionately exposed to exogenous shocks. So quite often, a small island developing state will invest heavily in infrastructure. Just think about building an airport in an island of 100,000 people. It can cost nearly an entire year's GDP, whereas it costs a fraction of that, even when it's very expensive in a big, rich northern country. And if you have a hurricane that destroys that infrastructure, then the cost is multiplied again, and then the debt burden grows. So lots of SIDS are struggling with heavy debt burdens, again, often through no fault of their own, but simply their exposure to external shocks, something we'll return to again and again in the podcast. Number three is that they have relatively high income levels, surprisingly so. Some SIDS are high income countries, many of them are upper middle income countries. And what that means is that they have difficulties in accessing concessional finance. They are still developing countries, but not always perceived in that way. And what's particularly important about that is that even if they have high levels of income, that can be wiped out very easily by an extreme weather event. So they can be doing well financially, but lose that all in an instant. It's also the case that the income is not well distributed within SIDS, so you can have a few high net worth individuals really skewing those numbers. Number two is that SIDS often have very small bureaucracies. Now, there's a paradox here because on the one hand, relative to the size of the country itself, the bureaucracy is often seen to be quite big and it's often called an employer of last resort. So in many cases, the state essentially soaks up unemployment by employing people. But at the same time, that bureaucracy has to carry out all of the responsibilities of statehood. So, you know, a country with 300 million people can defray that cost amongst a massive population. A country of 50 or 60,000 people, or even less, can't defray that cost. And yet they still have to maintain diplomatic missions in New York and Geneva and London and other places. They have to maintain a police force. They have to maintain all of the ministries that you generally require to run a, run a country, however small it may be. So the significant of this really is that they are exceptionally constrained in terms of their state capacity and their ability to exercise the full range of policies that they need to exercise, particularly when engaging with the international community, because international institutions are simply not set up to serve SIDS as customers in the way that they should be. And number one, and underlying many of the other issues that SIDS face, is that they have very small economies. You know, often the economy is really based on one sector, quite often tourism. And what that means is that specialization or focus on one particular economic activity makes them, of course, very vulnerable to external shocks, as we've already spoken about. It makes it very difficult for them to diversify. And diversification can mean that they have other options if a part of the economy is affected by, by something. So this lack of diversification, this focus on one particular sector makes them incredibly vulnerable. So in summary, 
the fundamental development problem in SIDS is not often a lack of development as such. SIDS are doing really, really well. They're punching above their weight internationally. They're generating often decent levels of growth. But the fundamental challenge they face is that that can be set back dramatically in a way that simply isn't the case in larger states. So when one of these shocks hits, it can decimate the entire economy for a period. It can decimate huge amounts of territory and they don't have much territory to begin with. So then bouncing back from that development, what we call in the SIDS literature, building resilience is much more difficult than it often is for bigger states that have more resources to draw upon and who don't get hit by those shocks in quite the same way to the same extent relative to their size. We come now to a segment called The Big Picture. In each episode of the podcast, we will invite a special guest or two experts in their field to take us behind the headlines of a story. Recently, Emily, you were advising negotiators representing SIDS at the Bonn Climate Change Conference. Can you tell us a bit more about the purpose of the meeting and what the pressing issues were on the table? Yeah, so every year, about halfway through the year, there's always a climate change conference that's held in Bonn, and it's timed to be kind of in between the COPs, the Conference of Parties, so that all of the parties, all of the member states can have a more technical discussion in preparation for the COP this year, COP28, to get through some of the agenda items so that not everything is being discussed for the first time when you get to the more kind of political negotiations part. Some of the agenda items were on, for example, adaptation, and around setting a goal for what they need to achieve, as well as the finance that's needed to support countries, both on the adaptation agendas, but also increasingly discussions around finance and what to do when there are impacts and how countries can be supported to address those impacts. So a lot of agenda items, a lot of discussion at the Bonn Climate Change Conference. Mikai Robertson was also there. Mikai is an ODI research associate and advisor to AOSIS and is based in Antigua and Barbuda. Mikai, why do we need these negotiations at all? What's the purpose of having climate change negotiations? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. And as it relates to why multilateral negotiations are really important, especially important for small and developing states, is linked to the name, right? Multi, it's multilateral. And so it allows for every country around the table, even the smallest of them, to have some sort of sane discussions, as opposed to what has previously, you know, happened as, as history has shown us, where sometimes a few nations make decisions on behalf of the, the collective, on behalf of most nations in the world. So, you know, the ideal place to solve a common concern of humankind is where most of humankind is represented. So does that mean it takes longer to take decisions and to make progress? Yes, sadly, it does take longer to to make decisions. However, those decisions have the highest level of legitimacy compared to any other decision that's not made in a forum that has everyone participating. So while it is urgent, it it is also necessary to make sure that everyone's views is are respected and we move together and no one is left behind which tends to sometimes happen especially with small island developing states yeah can you tell us Mikai, what were the big demands that small island developing states were making at this particular conference 
And how does that connect to their longer term patterns of climate lobbying? Yes, some of the bigger asks are, are the same act that we've been making for the last three decades. So clear one is on science and how we recognize science in the context of the international climate change politics. And that primarily comes from a scientific community organization known as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The next big issue was the global stock take, which happens periodically. And, and the global stock take is linked to the Paris Agreement. It's the, really the accountability mechanism of the Paris Agreement, but it's a collective one because the Paris Agreement is set up in this sort of collective framing of bottom-up nationally determined actions, but collective accountability so as not to kind of point figures on this country or that country. And there again, there were some, I guess, issues on how we interpret the Paris Agreement, how we interpret what are the objectives of the Paris Agreement, and even introducing other pillars like loss and damage into the discussion into the global stock take. Other areas as well included mitigation and how for the first time under the convention and the Paris Agreement, there's this discussion on a work program focused specifically on mitigation. And this was one of those political footballs that were potentially used for stalling progress in the technical work, because as Emily was highlighting, these were technical sessions that happen in the middle of every year. The political stuff really should happen at the COPs. Other key areas that were looked at at the session, things like the global goal on adaptation as well. And so the discussions there is how do you go about operationalizing that in each different country's context, noting that adaptation looks different. And probably the last thing I'd highlight is on, on loss and damage. Funding arrangements. There was a discussion through the Glasgow Dialogue that was created COP26 in the UK. And, and that Glasgow dialogue now fits a part of a broader package and discussion around loss and damage and loss and damage funding arrangements, and specifically the creation of an, an operationalization of a new fund from Sharm el Sheikh last year. So I'll stop there. But that, that's just an overview of what, what we're looking at. Fantastic, Mikai. That was a really wonderful overview of what went on at Bonn. I wonder if you could just bring bring what it's like in the negotiating rooms to life for our listeners. I mean, what's it like actually being a negotiator in that place on a day-to-day -day basis in that kind of pressure cooker? So the day in the life of a negotiator, <laughs> a lot of it, when you focus on our day-to-day -day task, first of all, discussing within, whether it be a national delegation, your regional grouping, your constituency, like the SIDS constituency, the broader constituency, and then actually in the multilateral negotiation, it's it's basically dolls within themselves, right? And and, and unpacking and, and seeing, starting from the national priority, going all the way up, all to the multilateral level. It, it is about listening. It is about finding commonalities. And it's about identifying differences and noting how there can be some, some solutions oriented with those, those differences and how you can safely interact with that by coming together and finding a, a collective solution on a lot of those issues that I mentioned before that, that were happening. So the end life of the negotiator is, is a lot of that, a lot of listening, a lot of interacting, a lot of engaging, a lot of patience. <laughs> 
Yeah, so it's really surprised me how how interconnected the different discussions are really and that's something that you alluded to Mikai that you know in one you think you're negotiating or you think the conversation is about one thing it's about adaptation but actually it's you know there's there's other conversations going on in other negotiating rooms and the outcomes of which you know will affect how how different countries engage on the topic in the room you're in like there there's a lot of kind of playing off of one topic or progress on one topic against another and i think you know that is it's, from a research perspective is really fascinating no absolutely and and i think that's probably the the only thing that i didn't mention and, and thanks for picking it up is is on strategy right and also geopolitics it's geopolitics beyond climate change uh, that feed into other discussions, and that happens every single year that since I've been a negotiator. And if you're not aware of that, broader geopolitics at play, you tend to be at a disadvantage or you do not get the whole picture, right? As, as kind of the title of this podcast is, you know, kind of the, the, the bigger picture of things. So I agree 100% that everything is interlinked with one another, but the best of negotiators are able to look at the entire field, you know, the chessboard, and figure out the best ways to solve and have solutions across all all different areas of the chessboard. And thinking about one of the the main outcomes that is really the most important for for SIDS, for small island developing states, is really about finance and and support to help them to help these small islands to adapt to climate change and to address the impacts. Finance is obviously a really big topic. Why do you think SIDS really need so much finance and why they deserve it? Like, if you can just explain a little bit why it's such an important topic for SIDS in the climate change negotiations. I think one of the main reasons why finance is so important to SIDS is because the problem that we're talking about, climate change, SIDS have not only special circumstances, but a unique combination of them which make it quite deadly, like a perfect storm, sadly, of issues that make it even worse for, for small island developing states in, in the context of that problem. And, you know, so it's linked to things like our, our size, how big our, our countries are, or rather how small they are, and our population, small population size and, and, and capacity and ability to sort of engage with solutions compared to bigger countries, right, of remoteness. And if you look at where SIDS are across the map, they tend to be far away from huge continental land masses, right? Things like our geography of where we are in relation to exposure to different hazards, climate hazards, disasters, etc. These are things that we can't change, right? You know, when you have that and then you have external shocks like a pandemic, you have external shocks like financial crises, they're just heightened, multiplied when you're in these smaller little economies. And so the provision of scaled up financial resources then become even more important and ensuring that we do have some preferential access as well as the scale that is needed to ensure that we're not left behind. But I guess the question is, you know, I guess back to everyone, do, do they not see this importance, right? Their needs, you've made very clear. I think the point about deserving the support as well is really important in the, the context of these negotiations. It's not just that they need more assistance, it's that in some way they are deserving of it. And I think that you know, the fact that 
that SIDS have contributed so little to climate change and, and yet really bearing the brunt is a really important narrative in all of this. Absolutely, absolutely. So Mikai, looking forward now, where do you see the climate negotiations going over the coming months and maybe years? How does this process connect to the upcoming COPs and how does it connect maybe to other SIDS advocacy that's taking place around the fourth international conference on SIDS that's taking place in Antigua Barbuda next year? Okay, so I think going forward, scientifically, there's little room for progress up until the end of this decade. If we go past and continue business as usual until 2030, that's really devastating, right, for for our smaller and developing states' economies. So, for example, this global stock take really is the global stock take for us. We'll continue to try and, and beat the drum on that and push for and advocate for it. But we can't do it by ourselves, and it needs to be a collective effort. When other countries start to put aside their self-interest and think about the collective interest, that's the only way that we're going to solve this. And now going quickly on to the fourth SIDS conference, that provides another opportunity where it is multilaterally agreed, a multilateral outcome on small and developing states. And I think where we can learn from the last three conferences, as well as their outcome documents, is that not only do we need to make pledges, but we need to make sure that they're trackable, they're able to be clearly monitored and and implemented. And, And that there is, for example, I'll always highlight the example of the broader context of just energy transition partnerships. There was one that was launched for South Africa, which is basically just earmarked funding, a set of partnerships with multi-stakeholder that's able to address certain issues. In that case, it was the energy transition for South Africa. The focus on SIDS, looking at and unrecognizing the different regional differences across SIDS and national differences as well, the unique combination of circumstances that I highlighted before, that does not only affect climate change, but also affects other different aspects of day-to-day life for small and developing states, people and their community. So that was Mikai Robertson there, ODI Research Associate and close friend of Resi, and also expert negotiator from Antigua Barbuda. Okay, so we now move to a segment called No Stupid Questions. And this is where we invite you, our audience, to get in touch with us to pose interesting, thought-provoking questions about the world of small island developing states. In this segment, we want to challenge misconceptions about the experience of SIDS or the, the context in which they are operating, because there's so much misinformation out there, and we think it's crucial to give our listeners a say. One question that keeps coming up and that we'd like to focus on is whether SIDS deserve aid. As we've mentioned just now, they do quite often have high levels of income, do seem to be doing quite well. And so I think that's a valid question and one that we that we should be discussing, right? Absolutely. We did this recently. We had an event at the ODI in May 2023, where we invited a huge number of experts who were involved in the United Nations process to establish a multidimensional vulnerability index. I'm really sorry, there's another acronym, the MVI. And the purpose of the MVI is essentially to find a new way to unlock sources of financing 
that countries which perhaps can't access that financing at present because of their supposed relative levels of wealth might be able to do so. Now, we're not going to go into huge amounts of detail about the MVI right now because we're going to be coming back to it again and again on future podcasts. But it helps us think about this question of whether or not SIDS do deserve aid. So, Emily, why do small islands deserve to access what is called formally official development assistance or aid and concessional financing? Well, I think from my perspective, there is certainly a question of justice and particularly climate justice here. So there are historical reasons why SIDS have faced development challenges and why they are now facing the extreme impacts of climate change. And those sort of historical factors relate to the fact that these were former colonies, that they were left with a sort of legacy of colonialization, which meant that there was a lot of natural resource extraction, which has affected and shaped their economic opportunities today. And of course, the industrialization, which was driven by natural resource extraction in, from these economies, that has you know, driven global warming. So there's a kind of double responsibility there. So that's an issue of climate justice. I agree very much. I think climate justice is a really crucial dimension of this story. The thing I suppose that I would add is that one of the real problems with the development architecture as it currently exists, and this might not be familiar to some of our listeners, it might be, is that essentially the main basis on which you are able to access official development assistance, i.e. aid, is, is your relative poverty as a country, right? So we take a measure of your GNI per capita, a bit like GDP, but slightly different. And if you fall below a certain threshold, then you become ODA eligible. You're on the list of countries that's entitled to that assistance. Now, this is a historical accident, really. I mean, there's no reason why this measure should be the only measure that determines your entitlement to aid. It's something that we've had for decades. It's always been controversial. SIDS especially have always campaigned against it for the reasons we've already discussed up to a point. One of them is the fact that per capita statistics are a terrible measure of development in very, very small territories because they're so easy to skew. By the same token, per capita measures work to the favour of very, very big developing countries because they have huge populations to distribute their national income amongst. So the measurements, to my mind, are a real problem. And there's no reason why we necessarily have to allocate aid on the basis of this, this simple kind of globally accepted measure, particularly when the world that we're living in today is increasingly becoming hostile to the interests of small island developing states quite visibly. Yeah, and perhaps finally, just going back to some of the comments that Mikai made, SIDS have these structural vulnerabilities, they're things that they can't do anything about. So we do need to think differently about what development means and whether there is always going to be this linear trajectory beyond which, you know, they you can say a state has developed and doesn't need any further assistance. So I think the particular context of SIDS is making us think differently about development as a whole. So that was our first no stupid question, the question of whether or not SIDS deserve development assistance. We're very keen to hear your views. So please contact us, send us an email, and we will happily engage with your questions in future episodes of the pod. So next month on Small Islands Big Picture, we're going to get to grips with the MVI and explain how it might work alongside other income criteria for accessing finance or eligibility for international finance. We're gonna have with us Ambassador Lutero from Samoa. He's the current chair 
of the Alliance of Small Island States, and he'll be joining us from New York. You've been listening to Small Islands Big Picture from ODI. For more information, you can see the show notes about the podcast. And if you want to send an email, you can write to info at odi.org with small islands in the title.